We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. We welcome you to Fellowship Bible Church this morning and invite you to find a convenient seat. We are going to continue our study that we have had the last couple of weeks during Sunday school this morning. A couple of prayer requests this morning. Uh, we want to give thanks, first of all, that uh, Darius is visiting with us today. That's a blessing. Uh, we also want to um, mention that the uh, Collins family, all five now are ill. Uh, at least uh, Jackson, who was first ill, is getting into his recovery very well. So that's better, but uh, they're in the midst of misery right now. Ian was the last one to fall victim, and uh, so he's not too happy this morning. If you guys are watching, we're praying for you. So hang in there. As uh, has been said, we all have to take our turn at these afflictions, and uh, certainly this one is a widespread affliction. Uh, Also, Uh, Christina mentioned that she has a cold and possibly COVID as well. We don't know about the diagnosis there, but uh, regardless, she's not feeling too well. Um, So anything that we can pray for, especially this morning, for anyone else? Yep, school is starting. Probably uh, tomorrow is the big day for many people, last week for some back into the fall routine. I kind of like the uh, the fall routine. The fall season is nice as well, yeah. Although we're, we're going to sweat it a little bit today, especially this evening in here. Still warm. Yes, uh, so the question is about uh, Jim and Joan. Uh, Jim... Uh, and Joan both are at uh, Hillside, and uh, he has been placed into the care of hospice while there because he's declined quite a bit. It's been a quite rapid decline. Uh, we visited with him earlier this past week and saw that firsthand. Um, not that it was a terrible surprise to us, but uh, just it's that season, that season of life. So. They're in the same building. They are, yes, yes. Uh, I would say she's, she's struggling a little bit. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gathered assembly of Christians here, people wanting to learn the Word of God and stay in touch with it. We pray that you will help and bless us this morning, give us strength and energy wakefulness, attentiveness, alertness, thoughtfulness to the matters that we address today. We pray this morning in intercession for Jim and Joan, for Christina, for Mark, for uh, Jackson, and for Kevin and Macy, and then for 
Christy and Ian in the order that they started getting symptoms. And we pray that you will help them through, each one according to their need and the various needs that uh, have been mentioned. You know them and give them each uh, perseverance and uh, faith in the midst of their trials. We pray, Lord, for those that are afflicted with even more serious diseases um, or problems. Think of uh, Nancy and uh, Rainey who are struggling and uh, also Winston's sister with a dreaded C word. And um, God, we commend them into your care and pray that uh, above all else, that you would be pleased to send your spirit to open their eyes, to open their hearts if they need Christ and that that work, that great work would happen in these days, perhaps waning days of their mortal earthly life. I want to thank you for the opportunity to look into the word today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to turn our attention back to the doctrine of divine judgment, which we began Two uh, Sundays back, I believe, you can listen to those um, messages on the website or see them on the live stream. The notes are also available such as they are now. They weren't the first week and maybe the second as well, but I put up a copy of those notes this time. And I am going to be navigating myself. If you're looking at them, I don't have them printed here for you, but online, navigating to around page uh, six. Uh, We've cautioned ourselves against overreaction of of the doctrine of uh, divine judgment, particularly eternal punishment. Um, By the way, those of you that are online or listening to the recording, you're probably hearing a lot more wind noise than normal. That's not because we're outside. That's because we have a number of fans going here to uh, make it a little more comfortable. Um, So what will happen is people will overreact to the doctrine of eternal punishment either by throwing it out entirely with the whole faith, so the baby goes out and the bathwater too, or they will uh, figure out some other kind of, could I say it this way, stretch of the text of the Bible that will dis- excuse uh, or set aside the doctrine of eternal punishment uh, because it is such an unpleasant doctrine. That is, <laughs> it is true, truly unpleasant. Uh, We also cautioned against making excuses like the illustration that I used a couple of weeks ago of the the person who professed faith in Christ but had fallen into moral sin and uh, didn't want to have to deal with uh, the whole idea and wanted to soften it, so they made excuses uh, about that. So we then considered some objections to the doctrine of eternal punishment. We looked at a number of different views of the eternal state of the sinner, including, well, reincarnation for one, but... That's outside of the Christian scope uh, at all. Then there's restoration or universalism, it's called. Uh, thirdly, annihilation. And fourthly, eternal punishment. And that's the view that we take here at the church, the traditional view. Um, and then we began looking at the basics of eternal punishment last time. And what I did for this time is I've extended a couple of sections of the notes and uh, those are in red, and then I added on to the end, and those are not in the red color. So sorry if you're looking for uh, color coding in the whole document. It won't be there. But um, I wanted to readdress the question of how long the eternal punishment is and then something of the nature of it. So the question of, of how long, the short answer is forever, 
Revelation 20.10 says that the devil, the beast, and the false prophet will be tormented in the lake of fire forever. I said last time, uh, since there are no scriptures that indicate an exit from the eternal punishment, we understand accordingly that all who are placed there stay there forever. The following verses teach the eternal duration, and I list a number of them. Matthew 18, 25, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, eternal destruction, Jude 13, Revelation, everlasting chains, Revelation 14, 19, 13, and the one I just read, 20, verse 10. I want you to notice, though, another one, if you turn your Bibles there to Matthew 25, in Matthew chapter 25 and verse number 46, Actually, uh, in the notes, I have it laid out for you in kind of a diagrammatical fashion, both in Greek and in English. Forgive me for the Greek. I've been thinking a lot about Greek lately. As you know, I'm going to be teaching starting on Thursday, Introductory Greek at the uh, Anchor Bible College, it's going to be called, in Ypsilanti. So um, uh, what does this text say? Jesus calls this place one of eternal punishment. Let me just read the whole verse. It says, and these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And actually, I suspect your version may be a little more consistent than mine. It should say either everlasting punishment and everlasting life or eternal punishment and eternal life. Here's why. Because in the Greek, it says, and these will go away, there's a future tense verb, uh, plural, these will go away into punishment eternal. The verb, or the word, sorry, not the verb, the, the word is kalasin, kalasin, punishment, and ionion, eternal. And then it says, but these, these other ones, the righteous, into life eternal. The same word is used, eternal, for both the life and the punishment. So these will go away to punishment eternal, but the righteous, understood, will go away to life eternal. The parallel is undeniable. The Greek word ionion, eternal, is used of both punishment and life. The conclusion is from this that hell is as endless a punishment, as heaven is an endless bliss. Are you with me? If, if heaven is an endless bliss and the same exact word is used in the text to describe hell, it must be also endless in its extent of time. We should also, and by the way, I think I'll come to this. Uh, yeah, I will in just a moment, so I'll hold off on that. We should also think of the word kalasin, punishment. It is only used twice in the New Testament. So it's kind of an interesting word. It's, it's uh, funny how the fewer times a word occurs in the New Testament Greek, the more interesting it is. Because if it occurs a thousand times, well, you can kind of you know, visit all thousand occurrences and get a really good understanding of its meaning. You have to look at some external literature sometimes to find the meanings of words that occur only once or a handful of times. The, um, the, the standard Greek lexicon, Bauer Danker, Arndt, and Gingrich defines the word kalasin as, number one, infliction of suffering or pain in chastisement, two, uh, transcendent retribution or punishment. 
So evidently, we would have to take the second of those because we're not talking about merely chastisement like a corrective thing, but transcendent retribution or punishment. That's kalasin, that rare word. But that's what the Lord Jesus says, eternal punishment and eternal life. The adjective eternal is attached to what word in the text? Look at it carefully. What, what, what word is it attached to again? I've said it you know, before, but what word is eternal modifying? It's an adjective. It modifies what? Somebody, anybody. What's that? Yeah, it modifies life, and it also modifies what other word in that text? Punishment, yes? It's not that the, the place is eternal, but the punishment is eternal. The adjective is attached to the punishment, not just the place. I can imagine somebody saying, yes, hell is eternal as a place, but the length of any particular person's punishment is limited. It's not everlasting. But this verse indicates that the punishment, the kalasin, is everlasting, not the place of the punishment. Indeed, the place is eternal. But this verse is emphasizing, saying that, Jesus is saying that the punishment is eternal. Similarly, the life is everlasting, not the place of life. In fact, very oddly, many don't maybe recognize this, but the heaven to which soul spirits go to today is not the final heaven. It's the intermediate heaven is what I call it. Why? Because God says in Revelation 20, from his judgment seat, the great white throne judgment, the heavens and earth fled away. And then in chapter 21, it says, and there I saw a new heavens and a new earth. So the present heaven is an intermediate heaven. So really the place is not the issue. It's the life or the punishment. In fact, something similar happens with punishment. Where does a soul or a spirit go today who is an unbeliever? What's the name of the place to which they arrive immediately after their death? It's called Hades. Or yeah, they go through the grave and they go to what the Old Testament suggested or talked about as Sheol. Sheol was not only the grave, but the underworld, if you will, or the world of the dead. And uh, we say it's, it's called Hades today because we see that in the New Testament theology. So somebody will go to Hades today, but then in Revelation 20, it says, Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they stood before God and were judged out of the books. And then anyone that was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the, not Hades, but into the lake of fire. So actually, it's not the place, because the place actually is going to change both for unbelievers and for believers. I don't know if you ever thought of that before, but that's what the, the timeline indicates in the book of Revelation. So uh, this is why, this is this eternal nature of the punishment itself is why the great difficulty lies in accepting the traditional belief of Christians regarding the lake of fire because you think it's too terrible. It is too terrible. That's why Jesus came to die for sinners, because it's too terrible. That's why the Bible enjoins us to be witnesses for Christ, because 
It's too terrible. Now, in another section of the notes, which is going to be found on page 8, if you're looking at the latest version of these notes, is about the nature of the punishment. Another Greek word that is used to describe the torments of hell is basanissai. Uh, there's not going to be a quiz on this, okay? But uh, anyways, there's, this is used in Matthew 8, 14, Mark 5, and 6, Luke 8. I looked up all these references, okay? So I've done my homework on it. Revelation 9, 11, 12, 14, and 20. Again, t- chapter 20, verse number 10. Let me just go through these. And just to give you a flavor for what this basanissai word means. Matthew 8 records the torment of a man who is paralyzed. That's the basanissai. My servant lies at home paralyzed and grievously tormented. Now, we do not know for sure the exact nature of his sufferings beyond the paralysis, but suffice it to say, it was torment for him. In Matthew 8, Mark 5, and Luke 8, the words are used, the word here, basanissai, is used by demons who are asking Jesus, will you torment us before the time? Before the end time. So that's obviously referring to the the eternal punishment that they they have come to expect. In Matthew 14 and Mark 6, the same word refers to the difficulties that the large waves were causing the disciples as they rode on the sea with great difficulty. You remember that? They go out on the sea. I mean, they're straining. That's, that's the, the Masanissi, the torment of, uh, of that task, trying to get that boat to move. Second Peter 2.8 talks about Lot. You remember Lot as he sat in the city of Sodom? What does the Bible say? His soul was tormented, hearing and seeing the evil of his neighbors. Revelation 9, locust-like scorpions, will, locusts which are like scorpions, will torment people on the earth for five months during the tribulation. That's the same word, torment. The two prophets in Revelation 11, remember they will prophesy and they will punish people who try to come against them and then they will be killed and they were blamed by the inhabitants of the earth for tormenting the inhabitants of the earth. Now, they didn't really torment them. God's judgment was tormenting them, and their own wickedness was cause of the tormentation, if you will, the torment. But the word refers also to struggles of giving birth, the torment of giving birth, the pain of that. Anyone who worships the beast will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the angels and the Lamb. That's Revelation 14.10. The devil, along with the beast and the false prophet, will be tormented, Basanissi, day and night forever, Revelation 20.10. And once again, the everlasting nature of the torment, the, the Basanissi is emphasized. So those are just some expansions, if you will, on our, on our ideas of the basics of punishment, eternal punishment. Now, what we came to then at the end of our last session was something of the rationale. Let me just mention, too, um, it just occurs to me to say, because I've done quite a bit of reading on this now, and I actually have 
another book by Harry Buis that I want to read and to finish a, a paper by Dabney, uh, and, then, and then there's others, <laughs> but helpful material that I have uh, discovered in those. But one of the things that's become clear is even theological liberals say, if you just read the Bible, the conclusion you come up with is, it's not reincarnation, it's not you know, uh, annihilation, it's eternal punishment. Just reading the plain text of Scripture. That's the common understanding of the text of Scripture. And even, not that we take unbelievers' opinions about it, but it's significant that when even those who don't believe in the doctrine of eternal punishment say, look, if you just read the Bible literally, there it is. Um, but we go on to some of the rationale. And we've touched on some of this before. I won't go over all of that. We can listen to the recording again. But the, the awful nature of eternal punishment is the next thing I want to talk about under this heading of the rationale for it. It serves to wake up the lost. It's so terrible, as I alluded to a moment ago, that anyone should want to avoid it at all costs. Now, you know, even Christians today poo-poo the idea of preaching hellfire and brimstone. But it does serve a purpose sometimes to do that. Because if you don't have anything to be scared of, if you don't have anything to flee from, if you don't have anything to be saved from, what's the point? Thus, the, the open teaching of, of eternal punishment by the Bible and by Christian teachers should raise alarm bells for all who hear. The plainly taught doctrine of hell is actually, this sounds backwards, but we learned this theology from the book of Jonah, the plainly taught doctrine of eternal punishment is actually a mercy from God. He didn't have to tell us that that's where you're going to end up if you don't live the right way, that is, trust in God and in Christ. He didn't have to reveal that to us. He could have just, you know, folded his hands and said, well, we'll just let him go for a while. It's a mercy from the Lord that he warns us away from that which is a natural consequence of our sin. And it's not just that God tells us an exaggerated story about hell to wake us up. In other words, it's not like he says, well, let me see, if I tell this terrible story, it's not true, but if I tell this terrible story, I'll get people to believe. He's not manipulating anybody like that. That's not God. Rather, he tells the truth of it to wake us up. If there were no truth to it, then it would not serve as a good wake-up call because people could just blow it off. Another thought in this whole heading of the rationale of eternal punishment, it's no surprise to us, or shouldn't be, that God sends the devil and his angels to hell. Do you think that they are excused from eternal punishment? Specifically says in Revelation 20, the verse that I read, what's it, verse 10, that uh, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The, the length of the torment is that. Um, it's no surprise. It's only a small step then from there. Let me just reemphasize that. The devil ought to go to hell. And his angels ought to as well. They're so, so devilish, so evil. It's just a small step from there to understand how it is right that God sends very wicked people there as well. 
like one of our favorite um, wicked people of all time, Adolf Hitler. We can uh, say, well, yeah, of course he deserves to go there. Longer the better, you know. And then again, it's not a large step from there to see how it is reasonable for God to send all sinners there. I mean, what's the difference between hating God and, and manifesting it like Hitler did or hating God and manifesting it like, you know, Joe Schmo down the street does? Still hating God, still not trusting in God, it's not obeying God. God could save everyone if he chose to do so but that wouldn't leave much room for free moral agency, would it? Or what people more commonly call free will. God has granted each person what I'll call the space not to believe in Christ. And many people take advantage of that space by staying in that unbelieving state. When I say taking advantage of, I say that kind of, yeah, advisedly, okay? Um, they find it comfortable in this life to ignore the existence of God or the salvation of Christ. Yet God has published far and wide the consequences for such a decision. He does not make anybody believe as if he twists their arm and compels belief. I trust that you generally agree with me about that. Now, about the, the matter of free moral agency, I've said that in a careful way. I don't really use the term free will because, uh, as one famous title said years and years and years ago, it's the bondage of the will. It's not the freedom of the will. When you're in the unbelieving state, you're a slave to sin. That doesn't sound free to me. That's the words of the Lord Jesus. So, free moral agency is a better way to say it because we don't have libertarian free will. We can't just do whatever we want, choose whatever we want, choose for or against God, uh, choose to sin or not to sin. Oh, if we're in unbelief, we're a slave to sin. We are enslaved. To one degree or another, we are still slaves. So, But God doesn't compel uh, belief, but he gives us a what I would call compelling reason to believe, but lets us have that, that choice. Another rationale for eternal punishment is this, um, in Christian theology, in my view, what provably better option can you think of? Provably better option can you think of? You know, you might say, when you're just thinking about the awfulness of eternal punishment and people going to be punished forever who deny Christ, you might say, there has to be a better way. There just has to be a different option. But the very definition of God, including his wisdom, his knowledge, his power, means that God is able to figure out the best option. You're not able to figure out the best. You might think you can figure out the best option, but that's just human pride entering into the equation. God's power also means that he can accomplish the ideas that he comes up with. It seems to me that the way things are explained in the Bible is that better and best option. There is no better way, else God would have chosen that better way. Now, we may not fully understand his reasoning, but he must have excellent reasons for choosing the way that he did. Remember, 
Your ways are not. Your thoughts are not. The fact that we cannot figure those things out gives evidence of our finiteness and our sinfulness. God would have designed the better way. Now, there's something a little bit missing here, um, which I think of when I think of this under the heading of the doctrine of the consequent necessity. Uh, if, since God is holy, there is consequent upon that a necessity that sin be handled in a certain proper way. That the universe of options that you could think of, like, you know, do nothing or uh, 39 lashes or uh, a slap on the wrist or, you know, eternal punishment, the whole range. That whole range is not available because consequent upon God's holiness, something of equal weightiness to his holiness has to be accomplished or done in order for sin to be cared for properly. Now, couldn't here's another thought. Could not God permit people forever the opportunity to decide to follow him? In other words, why not just give them a, a, a long, long, long life and eventually everybody will come to see the reasonableness of the gospel and Maybe, uh, you know, you put them into purgatory for a while and that'll really convince them. And uh, evidently, though, that's not the case because that's not what we see in this limited life we live. God gives us a deadline. That's an interesting thought. You know, if you don't give yourself a deadline, often the job that you're thinking about doing will never get done. You've got to give yourself a deadline. <laughs> and for the unbeliever, there's no, there's no deadline that, that would cause them to, you know, invariably come to the right answer. So he gives a deadline, expecting the task of deciding to follow Jesus or not following and deciding not to can be accomplished in the typical lifetime. Any more time than that is not necessary and is superfluous. Anyways, well, I think I'll come on to this later. Um, so I'll hold that for now. Did you ever think about this additional thought in terms of the rationale for hell? Hell is not the worst suffering that anyone could endure. You say, hmm, it seems pretty bad to me. Actually, Jesus Christ endured the worst suffering that there is to endure under the wrath of God, sufficient not for the sins of one person, like if I were to be an unbeliever and I would pay for my own iniquities, sufficient rather for the sins of every human who has ever lived in this world and as even limited atonement or definite atonement advocates say, and for hypothetically, the beings of any number who could ever live in this world or any other number of worlds ever. They're just trying to say the value of Christ's suffering is infinite. Amen. It's not limited. It's actually of infinite extent. Now, you might object that the suffering of Christ was for a limited duration. Indeed, it was. But he suffered all of the penalty 
of all sin, all time, in His infinite person. That was the worst suffering. When God set His face, as it were, against the Son judicially in wrath, judging Him for the sin of the world. Sinners in hell never actually experience that full extent of suffering because they never finish it. Jesus did finish it fully. I also read a helpful section in William G.T. Shedd in his Dogmatic Theology. He's a Reformed author and has some helpful things. Shedd writes that if you believe that the just God exists, that mankind has free will, so if you believe that God exists, you believe that mankind has free will, and you believe that sin is voluntary, he says you have enough to defend the doctrine of the eternal punishment of the unbeliever. And then he adds some factors to his explanation, which I'll just walk through now with you because I think it's thought-provoking. First of all, sin is done voluntarily. Yes? Yes. It is done so in light of the universal knowledge of God, which includes that offenders are worthy of punishment. Romans 1, remember, says that we know of God's eternal power and His deity. And then in verse 32, it adds something interesting there. It says those people uh, basically encourage wrongdoing and applaud others in doing it, even though they know such is worthy of judgment. Their conscience tells them that. God cannot be blamed for this situation. Sin is purely the work of the sinner. You know, since somebody says to you, why did God create evil? You say, wait a minute. The problem of evil is not that God created evil. It's that humans created evil. God didn't create evil. Secondly, uh, Shedd suggests and is kind of thinking through this, punishment is not calamity, nor is it chastisement like for reformation. Punishment is retribution, payback, vengeance. All three of those ideas, calamity, chastisement, and retribution, all glorify God in their own way, but only the last, retribution, satisfies divine justice. Some punishments do have a good consequence, such as deterrence to others or improvements of the sinner or protection of the civil order. I mean, that's why we have jails and we have death penalty and we have fines and things to protect the civil order and deter people from doing sins and so on. Final punishment does not seem to have the improvement motif whatsoever. It should indeed have a deterrent effect, driving people away from eternal punishment toward the gospel and thus hopefully restraining sin and helping the civil order be, uh, in fact, orderly. But it does not have the improvement motif whatsoever. In fact, if the Bible says uh, in this life that evil men and seducers wax worse and worse and evil people grow more evil, then what do you think happens in hell? Do they get better and better? Doesn't seem likely, does it? Thirdly, final punishment must be endless. And here's an interesting, again, rationale now. Final punishment must be endless because the reason for the punishment never ceases to exist. The guilt of sin always remains and cannot be erased. 
other than through the gospel of Jesus Christ, who took the guilt for repentant sinners to himself. So you follow that? Eternal punishment is eternal because the reason for it never ceases to exist. People in hell for 100 years are guilty of transgressing a God against God, and after 1,000 years and 10,000 years, their condition of transgressing against God is still the same. There's no statute of limitations. It doesn't diminish. They still are a transgressor against God and have not had their sins wiped away. They still have those sins. Fourth, furthermore, he suggests, guilt cannot be subdivided into pieces in such a way that each piece is paid for in a certain amount of time. Guilt is an indivisible thing, and guilt against an infinite God is infinite guilt. That's why when we talk about the the death of Christ, we don't want to think of it in terms of financial um, arrangements, you know, like each sin is equal to one dollar, and he paid the one dollar. No, each sin is worth a zillion dollars, you know, an infinite number of dollars. And so the punishment for sin and the payment for sin and the guilt of sin is an ethical thing, not a financial thing. And so it has this infinite quality to it. Number five, although people who object to the doctrine of eternal punishment would say that God is wrong, he should do it a different way, God is not wrong to exact justice. Romans 12 says that vengeance belongs to God. Romans 3, 5, and 6 asks the question, is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? The answer is no, he's not unrighteous to take vengeance. I mean, if you... People could say, you know, to bring this down to a human level, the police officer who arrested me for killing that poor old person, that police officer is wrong to judge me. You know, judge not lest he be judged, (laughs) they say. No, the police officer is not unrighteous for enforcing justice. And I hope eventually many people who have been nabbed by the police and sit in jail for a while have a good long time to think about that and realize they're the ones that are wrong, not the law, not the police officer, not God. No, God is not unrighteous. In fact, he is righteous to do so. It is of necessity righteousness for him to judge sin. Number six, human punishments are a finite approximation of the divine exaction of justice the perfect exaction of justice. And those punishments, um, in human terms, typically consider the finite side of the effect of sin. A person is hurt or property is taken and the like, but that only considers a small part of the guilt of sin. God's vengeance considers everything that is in account for the sin, including the impact on God's infinite, infinite justice His punishment includes the effect of sin upon the entire society, present and future, and the full scope of the guilt. So we're still working through, and I've got about, uh, what do I have? A couple, few more pages of information here that I think I'll work on and add to and share with you next time. This is a very important thing, very important doctrine that has troubled many people, and I think it's worthy of our of our thought and attention. I hope some of that has stirred some thoughts for you. Go back and read the notes if you want to ponder them some more. 
There are some other sources. I've got a list of references in the back, some of that annotated on the last uh, page and a half that you can look at if you want to, and I'll be adding to that as God permits this coming week. So let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the uh, merciful teaching that warns us away from eternal condemnation. And Lord, we are trying to deal with the difficulties of it faithfully, trying to apply your word, trying to think through the nature of justice, of guilt, of punishment, uh, of retribution, and of the work of Christ as he overcame that for those that are in him. Help us, Lord, as we ponder these matters, not to be uh, frightened, but to take them into calm account and to amend our ways accordingly. Perhaps, Lord, for many of us who are in Christ, that simply means to have a higher level of urgency when we're telling people about Jesus. We thank you for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen.